for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Fall Podcast, where the focus is on deer hunting, tips, tricks, tactics, and stories from across the Midwest. And now, here is your host, Aaron Blicey. Welcome to the Fall Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Blasey, and this is episode number 54. And today, Justin, we have another Michigan native for two weeks in a row on here, so I'm super excited about that. I don't know if you're excited, but I am. <laughs> I mean, I am. It's it's just different the way you guys are doing things up there, and it's just it's cool for me to hear the different management practices that, that you guys are using. And I know he's got a similar situation that he's working with, and uh, you know, he's got a little bit more room than you do to, to work with here. But uh, you know, you guys are just doing—you're kind of doing the same thing. You know, you're just trying to maximize the potential you see in your property and give the deer all that they could want. You know, hoping to get those shooters to come by, and you know, in his case, maybe even inhabit the five or the ten acres he's got there. But that's still a small piece of property. But. I don't know. It's just, it's just it's just cool for me to hear. Like, I mean, obviously, like I'm on the public land side of things now, and I, I didn't have my own property in New York, but it just goes to show the, I guess, the fire in everybody when it comes to doing this kind of stuff, and you know, just having your own piece of dirt to to call your own and make yours. Yeah, and like like you said, I mean, we're gonna be talking about small pieces today, small acres. You know, Matt's working with ten acres and here on the west side of Michigan he's got about nine more acres of timber than I do but he kind of throws in some extra stuff that could hurt him in a way he lives on the property so there's a lot of activity around the property all the time Um, but also he's done a lot of improvements in the last four years to get this property to where he wants it and he's he's almost there to that final goal And, and I'm excited to let everybody hear this episode because I every time I hear guys talking about this, whether they're from Michigan or not, you know, small acres or whether it's you know big acres, it doesn't matter. I I just get a grin from ear to ear on it, and maybe it's just because I love the management side and the the extra that goes into you know working on a farm and and putting your time in and 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 really putting things where you want them to hunt it in the fall and ultimately try to have that success that you're you know everybody's trying to have. So. It's really cool. Like I said, it, I, I'm just excited 
to hear everybody talking like this and, and the way that they do things. I love those little tips and tricks everybody does. And, and uh, yeah, and Matt's got a lot of them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's basically just, you know, looking at your property and, you know, deciding your plan of attack. You know, you can say, if I do this, then this should happen. But there's no way to know until you do it. You know, so it's like, well, it's right. You're constantly learning, constantly evolving. You know, this worked, this didn't work. This seed worked, that seed didn't. Like, deer come from that way, so I'm going to plant this there. And it's like, I mean, it's just it's a strategy thing. And I mean, we all know that when it comes to whitetails, it's all about strategy. But it's just, I don't know. It's just so cool to me to to hear the different perspective, especially from these small parcel owners, you know, like like you and Matt. So it's, I didn't I didn't get a lot. A lot of uh, a lot of mic time on this one. I was just really tuned in, and <laughs> keyed up on listening to, to you guys go back and forth, and it was. I mean, I took a lot out of it. So, I mean, I hope I hope the listeners do. Yeah, you know, and you're just there for moral support sometimes too, and <laughs> right. I really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when uh, I'm on my second week of Michiganders. Yeah, exactly. You're getting <laughs> and every week. With. I mean, I'm with you every time. Well, I so. just mean, I've, yeah, I'm outnumbered two weeks now, so it's like, eh, these guys are just going to go off. I know it. <laughs> yep. Well, you know, right. I do want to. I do want to go back to talking about how you kind of preface in this podcast about using the resources you have. And I think that's huge, and that's that's a good point because, you know, we say it every time, and I, and I know people are like, God, I wish you'd stop talking about it. But the one acre, you know, I use a lot of resources in there and within that one acre to make it the way it is. But there's a lot of gray area that comes with that, a lot of things that you need to do and not to do to make that successful. And one is don't hunt it all the time. Hunt it on the right times, and you will find success because the more pressure in there – the you know the more your success is going to go down so i i really like that you touched you touched on that and you know maybe that's something we actually branch out into a coffee call about is you know just really using the resources you have at hand and maximizing all that to get the best success that that you ultimately want yeah that's and that's all you can do it's you just do it your way i mean it, it doesn't affect anybody else but you and it's, I mean, exactly. I guess in the, in the grand scheme of things, it does. Like when you're, when you're manipulating your little chunk, you know, if you're part of a larger scale, you know, habitat, it does affect others. But I mean, ultimately you're only making those decisions so that they affect you in the way that you want it to. And I guess at the exactly. end of the day, that's to either grow or attract mature deer, however you define that. Yeah. I, I mean, I couldn't have said it any better myself. So let's let's do a quick transition here. You know, we do want to bring up America's Best Bowstrings real quick before we do get in there. We are running uh, the promo code still, so it's Fall Podcast at checkout. So go to the website, order your strings and cables, type in Fall Podcast at checkout to uh, get ten dollars off. You know, your orders ninety nine dollars and over. And uh, yeah, hopefully you guys go out there and use that promo code. It's there for a reason. And uh, hopefully you guys need some new strings and cables and you choose America's Best Bowstrings. So with that being said, let's kick this over to the interview with Matt and uh, we'll go from there. All right, we are back with another podcast. And today we have another Michigan native on the phone with us, Matt Zoll. Matt, how you doing, man? Pretty good, Aaron. How are you? Doing good. Hey, I, uh, another mutual friend uh, <laughs> introduced you and I and... You know, he's actually got a couple guests on here for us, and uh, Sean Ferrendorf was the other one, and 
now he said you got to get a hold of this guy. He's this guy's an he's an animal. We need to talk to him. So <laughs> reach out to you, and I'd like to get this started. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, Adam's a he's a good guy. Yeah, well, a lot of people would say that. I don't I don't know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, he's a good dude. Yeah. Well, cool. I mean, if you could kind of start off by introducing yourself, you know, where you're from, where you grew up, and and maybe what you do for a living. Yeah, so um, my name is Matt Zoll, as Aaron said. Um, I was born and grew up in the West Michigan area. Specifically, I was born and raised in Twin Lake. Um, I currently live in Montague, Michigan, so just a little bit north um, west of there. And um, my wife and I, we bought our house in 10 acres uh, about four and a half years ago now. And um, just, it was a great location. It was one of the first houses we looked at, fall in love with it. It had a uh, creek backside of the property line. Um, really a lot of state land around the area, but not pressured a whole ton. Um, I knew there was deer in the area. Didn't know what caliber of deer, but, you know, for the house and the location, having access to water, I can walk out back behind my house and shoot ducks and geese. I can shoot deer. I've shot turkey. Um, so it's really kind of a mini, a mini little oasis here. So we've been, we've been real happy so far. And, um, I, uh, am a physical therapist by trade. So that's what I do Monday through Thursday. I luckily get a long weekend off. I don't work Fridays anymore. So that helps with, uh, weekend hunting trips and, you know, habitat management around the house and on the lease. So, well, awesome. You know, and I just want, I, I want to kind of call you out a little bit because you actually really bought this for hunting land, right? Not to actually have <laughs> a nice place to live. Is that what it was? <laughs> it, well, the funny thing about that was, is, is when we saw the listing, I saw 10 acres and I saw water and I was like, okay, it's worth checking out. I mean, the house looked pretty good from the photos. Luckily my wife fell in love with the house cause she's pretty particular about what she wants in a house and you know, how the layout is and she had all these ideas and luckily they fit most of the uh, agenda that she was looking for. And then, yeah, obviously the, the, the property was pretty nice and the, and the access to the water was, was uh, another key feature too. So I did luck out that my wife loved the house because I did like the property quite a bit. <laughs> Your first thoughts were though, man, I could kill some good deer out there and ducks though, wasn't it? <laughs> well, I, I definitely saw the potential for the deer. I mean, I knew that the, the ducks and geese thing was, was, you know, they were always going to be there. I figured there'd be Turkey there. And I actually, you know, didn't realize it until we moved in here, but there is, um, brook trout and brown trout in the creek and then the, it flows into the pond that's dammed up on the south end of it and i've actually caught a 20 inch brown out of there a couple springs ago so it really kind of has everything that a, a sportsman would want yeah you've really backed into the mother load there i'd say yeah seriously only thing missing <laughs> is about another 30 acres and then it would really be a gold mine but you know we, <laughs> we can't have it all exactly well you know you kind of mentioned your 10 acres that's what we've been talking about and you have a specific set of goals that you've been trying to do on this 10 acres. And one of them in, in which is to try to kill, you know, like 130 inch deer on it. Is that correct? Yeah, that would be the, the ultimate goal. As long as I own the property, that's going to be my goal, you know, until I obviously, if I hit it great, if I don't, you know, it's just going to be a learning process of the, the do's and the don'ts and, you know, what worked well and what didn't work well. I mean, I know big bucks can be taken off small properties and you see it every year, even in Michigan throughout the state. There are some, you know, really nice. It just it almost comes down to do you have the, the quality of the property um, as opposed to sometimes the quantity in, in a lot of situations, too. So, 
Yeah, and you know, you've said you've had this this ground for four years. You've lived there and you've hunted it for four seasons. You know, what what has been the progression? So, you know, let's go through like year one. What what was your were you able to get a lot of work done on there as far as plots or, you know, anything TSI or, you know, yeah. anything in that at realm and, and kind of how did that first year shake out? So the first year was really my, I would call it like a virgin year as far as habitat management. It's my first piece of ground that I owned. I messed around a little bit on my dad's property that he had, but never to the extent that I'm doing now. Um, the only, I would say kind of drawback and flaw to this property. And this was my hesitation when I bought it was, there was a, a really large clearing out towards the road and right alongside the long driveway. The house sits at almost the very back of the property, probably close to 800 feet off the road. And this big clearing, I would say, is three quarters of an acre about. And it was wide open, no trees in it, just overgrown grasses, nothing, you know, really upkept or anything like that. And they're just native species. And I kind of was trying to figure out, okay, what should I do with this? It's right by my driveway. It's right by the road. There's about 30 yards of woods between the road and the edge of that plot. Well, what it ended up being the plot. Um, so I decided that that first year that I was going to trial and make that like a destination food plot source. So I ordered um, during the winter at our local um, county conservation district, I ordered um, 100 Norway spruce transplants, all about 12 to 16 inches tall. And I planted them in a perimeter all the way around three rows of them staggered, um, a kind of offset up by the road, two rows going down my driveway, one row going down the woods, um, going to the north side, and then one row kind of on the, you know, off-shaped angle that it made to connect that rough-shaped rectangle. And then ordered um, four fruit trees. I got two galas out there and two honeycrisp apple trees that kind of divide that longer rectangle three quarters of an acre ish into two halves. Um, and that was the first big step that I did as far as bringing, you know, some, some different variety of trees and that stuff into the area. And then what I worked with the first year, I only had a walk behind tiller that I borrowed from my dad. And I think I probably tilled up, uh, two 20 yard wide by 40 yard long strips. And it took me probably six and a half hours to till oh, wow. us through twice <laughs> and walking out there and this i mean it was brutal even though it wasn't warm i mean i did it in the springtime shortly after i planted the trees and you know at that time i didn't know really what i was doing just knew i wanted to get some food in there and this made the most sense because it was going to get the most sun and i wasn't going to have to do too too much to it um didn't even know about doing soil samples at that time or anything like that i was i was really just winging it and um so I went and bought some some food plot seed off the, the shelf at the store. I won't mention what brand seed and all that good stuff. And, uh, you know, it did okay. I thought it was doing great. Come to find out, it, it really wasn't doing that great. It was a lot of ryegrass filler seed and all this stuff. But I got deer in there. I mean, I got to see deer, and I got to kind of get a little mini inventory as to what was going on. Um, right. Then it was that fall that – I was like, well, I think I'm going to get serious about this. So I'm going to expand what I did till and then try and think about, okay, let's, let's explore the food plot options out there. And that's when I got hooked up with killer food plots and um, got in touch with Nick Percy, the owner there. And I can tell you that guy has, has been nothing but um, a, a wealth of education um, for not just me, but any of his customers, I think. The, the reason why I've stuck with his product so far is I bought two bags of seed 
and uh, he told me to give him a call if I ever had any questions. So I called him and he said he couldn't talk right then, but he called me back later. So I think we spent probably 45 minutes to an hour. And again, he's talking to me, never hardly met me, doesn't know me from a hole in the ground. And from that moment on, like the food plot game was changed for me. I learned so much in that amount of time, did my soil samples, knew what I had to put down as far as lime, as far as, you know, my, my micronutrients and knew where my organic matter was. He talked me into doing soil samples and, you know, the whole nine yards. And I expanded those mini plots into a little bit bigger and had some pretty good success with growth that fall for fall plots. I think I did a brassica, their brassica blend. And I think I did a, uh, I started a, a clover plot that fall, which then I kind of frost seeded into the next spring. And um, I hunted, I hunted decent that first fall, not a, not a ton, but um, I did hang a stand on that, um, what I would call that destination plot, what it is now. And then I had one kind of as a, or on a travel corridor connecting down from my creek bottom, kind of in a transition route to that. So in case, you know, I didn't want to sit out on that big plot if I didn't have anything you know, consistently coming in at in the evening time or right around the rut. So in that first year, you know, you did a lot of improvements as far as the plots and you, and you planted a lot of trees and I'm guessing those, those trees are probably for barriers. So you could kind of, yep. you know, make your property feel almost bigger and, and more secure and safe for the deer. Now, yeah, the, the Norwegian spruce that I put in there, they're pretty exactly right as a, like a barrier and a screen. I, you know, I, I love the annual screens that are out there. I wasn't sure or even aware of, you know, the switch, switch grass or, you know, any of the other um, perennial screens that exist out there. So I wanted something that I knew was going to be permanent. I knew it was going to be a good windbreak. So I went with those. And then the apple trees was just something where, you know what, fruit trees are cool to have on your property. Great source of food, good attractant. So it was kind of a win-win. Right. And then you said, you know, you put a stand on that destination plot. So that first year, I mean, did you find any success with as far as, you know, killing anything or did you kind of define success as far as just wanting to be able to get deer in there in daylight hours and be able to have an opportunity? Yep. Yeah. The very first year I told myself, you know, I don't need to kill a deer on my, on my property at my house. I obviously would if the opportunity presented itself. I didn't know what kind of numbers I had as far as buck to does or how many deer were even accessible. I think the biggest thing that I was looking for was like, can I get deer consistently in shootable hours, whether that be evening or morning anywhere on my property, not just in the food. And I was successful that first year. I think, um, between the cameras capturing them and between, you know, me being out there and actually witnessing the deer, I probably would say that the, the most of the time I would see three to four deer, you know, doe, small family groups and stuff like that. Some small bucks I did see on camera, never actually saw any in person that year um, when I was hunting, but you know, they were there during daylight hours, just, you know, you got to work or, you know, whatever else comes up, but I was never able to, not that I would have shot them, but it would have been nice to see, you know, kind of that, that come full circle there as well. But I viewed it as a, as a victory that first year, just, you know, kind of going into everything blind and as, you know, a learning experience as you go. Okay. So, so fast forward to the next year, you know, your second year on the farm, did you make any big improvements as far from year one to year two? Yes. Uh, second year was, is, was a huge jump. Um, I convinced my dad that, um, and I tried to convince him of this for years, but I convinced him that we needed to have a tractor. <laughs> and uh, so, so my dad, my dad having property of his own, and you know, we both grew up cutting and splitting wood and, and doing that. So, I convinced them that we should go buy one, and we finally found the right deal on a 38 horse uh, four wheel drive Kubota with a bucket. 
and it came with forks and we bought that and that just opened up a whole new can of worms and you know opportunities galore so when we when we got that um i ended up finding a a small three-point disc about a six-footer and uh that made that destination plot turn into almost that full destination plot so you know i increased a ton of of ground tonnage of food you know just by having more accessibility to being able to work that ground and you know i can probably till that three quarters of an acre you know even if it's a, even if it's just a you know a soft till i can probably turn it over in about 30 to 45 minutes um so that was huge but also what was nice is i didn't really have any trail systems on my property it was it was mainly woods i had a, a small trail going out to one of my plot or one of my stands that was in the woods um that I set on a couple trees that had some major runways, but so I opened up a, a main trail system that went from all the way at the front of my property at the destination plot, kind of snaking and winding through as best as I could for just ease of getting the trail established all the way actually to the back behind my property down towards the Creek. And, um, that trail still exists today. Um, and also halfway between the road and down by the Creek, I also made, um, one small kill plot that year. Um, I did all that stuff in the spring. I didn't get it planted in the spring, was only able to plant it in the fall, but expanded my food plots significantly by adding a kill plot and then obviously increasing the, uh, the tonnage of food that I put in that destination plot. Um, and then creating that travel, that main trail that I put so I could get back and forth if I needed to without disturbing the woods or setting everything up too much. It was always cleared down to dirt. So you weren't trying to disturb the woods too much. Okay, and and then you said you put in that kill plot. How big was your kill plot? That first kill plot I put in because there wasn't any natural openings, like the big one up front. I think it was probably, I would say, 15 yards wide by 25 yards long. Just something big enough that, you know, it might stop a deer to graze a little bit or, you know, a buck yep. might come up on the edge to take a look. Um, it wasn't big at all that year. Now, going into that fall with that new kill plot, did you have a stand on that plot or were you, were you planning on getting yep. in there and trying to find some success on that? Now, did you find success in the year two on any of the, you know, any portion of your property? So the fall of year two, yeah, I planted that kill plot and I did hang that transition stand that I was just sitting on runways before I hung it on the kill plot. And 99% of my sits when I would hunt my property were on that kill plot um, um, stand. And I would only hunt my destination plot if I had something consistently coming in that I was willing to harvest. Um, and, and I told myself that at that time, I still wasn't seeing a great number of deer on my cameras and in person. You know, I maybe would see, you know, six, seven deer would show up at one night on a camera after dark. And I'd see, you know, the occasional three, four come out within the last half an hour, still nothing that I would feel super confident about yet, but I knew the steps were going in the right direction. And I chose, I had opportunities at does that year, but I just didn't feel comfortable with, you know, making that harvest yet when I really didn't know I only had one spring under my belt to see how many fawns were getting, you know, reared around every year. So I decided to give my house a pass unless a, you know, a shooter buck would come in. And at that time for me, a shooter buck um, was a two and a half year old um, coming through. Okay. You know, and that's something that Justin and I have done podcasts about with the does and the doe numbers. And you sound like you have a, sim- a similar situation like I do on one of my farms here. And I, I don't want to shoot a doe on it yet because I just don't feel like my doe numbers are overabundant yet. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I, I don't see a lot of does. So until I start seeing 
what I think is too many does. I, I just haven't taken one yet. So I feel like you're probably in the same boat I am and, and Justin as well. He, he feels the same way about that. Yeah. And yeah. another big driving factor of that is I have state land probably within a quarter mile drive of my house. I live just south of the border of um, Oceana County and Muskegon County line. And I knew from that first year, once it hit rifle season that it, you know, the orange army comes out and, you know, I'm a rifle hunter. I get it. I understand. But I didn't know how that, you know, harvest every single year during that two weeks was going to really impact. So, you know, it could make that make or break the difference. If, you know, I take one of the does out that's having twins or something like that, you know, 60% of the doe population dies during rifle season. I didn't want to start myself out in a hole. So that was kind of my, you know, decision to, to also reinforce that no harvest of a deer, unless it was a shooter buck that first couple of years. So going into the first two years on your on your farm, you you haven't crossed paths with a, with a shooter yet, and you know even on camera, correct? Is that is that correct? Year number two actually is I got um, still to date the largest um, I would say scoring deer I ever got and I've ever had on camera at my house, and the only reason I know the exact score of it is because my neighbor about uh, a mile away killed it on opening uh, night of rifle season. And he, it was a 146 inch nine pointer. I had him on camera. Oh, I think two or three different times. One time in August, I, and I about just lost my mind. I was like, diesel pizza, is this my camera? Is this at my house? But it was out, (laughs) it was out on the edge of my destination plot. And then he disappeared in August and he showed back up in October again. Um, didn't have any daytime photos of him, but it was real close to daytime. It was early, early morning and he was on a doe. So um, substantially bigger than anything else I would, would have seen thus far on camera or in person. So that would have been, I would say the first shooter that showed up. I don't think I had a, a two and a half year old that second year I had that year. And I don't know if he was, if he was three and a half or he was four and a half, um, you know, horns, you know, would suggest, you know, an older deer, but his body size, he really looked, you know, at three and a half to me. Yeah. So it sounded like he probably wasn't living on your farm. He was probably living, you know, a ways away from your farm and just using yours as a, as a transition to, to other farms. Is, is that kind of correct? Yeah. The, the, when that deer was shot and um, it was my buddy's dad who shot that deer, that kind of led me to shape how I wanted to tackle the next two years at my house. Um, that deer was shot at about four o'clock in the afternoon, um, just out moseying around looking for a doe. Big difference in his property from mine his was substantially thicker than mine was. Mine had a lot of mature, like virgin timber, white pine, that some of them were five, five and a half foot at the base in diameter, you know, super big trees, um, shading a lot of undergrowth out. So I knew from kind of that point on that my big goal was going to be, all right, I've got a good kind of food source up and coming here. I know I have the water, you know, the thing that I don't have, and I think it's probably hurting me the most for daytime deer activity and, and buck activity is going to be the cover. And that's kind of where the last two years have been for me. So going into year three and four, then you're trying to improve your cover. Now, were you starting with hinge cutting and stuff like that? Or was it more of like planting more trees and, you know, trying to do some, you know, any other sort of barrier or? Well, the year three, I kind of started to explore my options. Um, I, I bought, um, Jim uh, Broker's um, Extreme Deer Habitat book and learned a lot about felling trees, a lot about hinge cutting, did a little bit with the hinge cutting, um, but then started uh, to think about, hmm, 
do I need to do a select cut on my property with the large trees that I do have, the amount of poplar that I do have on the property? Um, so I started calling around to some foresters and to some loggers, kind of getting some ideas and some bids and eventually settled on a, uh, a local guy um, from the Hesperia area. So not too far from here, just a little northeast and just a two man operation, him and his son. Um, but they do it privately and they take your timber bids to as many different mills that are interested and they get you the highest price um worked out pretty well so they came in and he educated me a lot originally i thought i'll just take all those big pines but he really understands kind of the age structure and class that you need in the woods you know even if you want to make a good deer woods and make it thick and nasty and you know all that stuff you still need those different age structures they all serve a different purpose at you know, different seasons, different times of the year. So I harvested about 50% of the, the, the huge white pines that I had. Every poplar I had on the property that was 10 inches in diameter or bigger, I took. And um, he took a, a few select hardwoods that were uh, kind of veneer um, furniture grade. And that kind of was the, I would say, I'm not trying to skip ahead of year three. Year three was just, you know, more of an expansion of what year two was, Um um, and then going between the uh, um, spring of the spring or the end of, I would say, year three into year four last season is when I did that select cutting. So then, you know, you're through year four then. Have have you been able to kill a deer yet or yep. are you still just trying to get that right one? Yep. I killed an eight pointer actually the year before I did the uh, the hinge cutting or the year before I did the select cutting. I'm sorry. And I did. So kill year three. Him. Year three. Yep. I did kill him off my destination plot. I had four or five pictures of him coming in um, to my uh, food plot at night with a five-pointer in that last couple weeks of September, first week of October. Um, the wind was right, and it was coming out of the north. And I believe it or not, I, I got out of work, and I drove home, and I'm like, you know what? Cold front pushing through. I'm going to go sit on that plot. That buck's going to come in tonight. And I'll be dang. I saw the most deer I ever have on a sit. I think I had... I think almost 12 in the field at the same time. By the time that buck came out, I had a little button buck come out first and some does and um, heard another deer coming. Doe came running out in the field. And then that five pointer that I knew that eight been running with. And I'm like, hmm, well, no eight pointer. So I'm sitting and watching them. And then sure enough, probably last five, 10 minutes of light. I just hear that distinct kind of walking. You can tell when that buck's, you know, walking, breaking brush coming through. And I'm like, Oh gosh, that's gotta be a buck. And I looked out of the corner of my eyes. He crossed my driveway, came right in where I wanted him to. And I just looked and saw that beam and, and tines. And I, I knew it was either that eight pointer or a different eight pointer that kind of split off from each other over the summer. And I let him get out in the field about 10, 12 yards and gave him a little mat and, shot him at I think it was 12 or something like that and he went about 60 yards and died between my destination plot and my uh my kill plot oh nice so how big is your destination plot then is it like an acre or, or how big are you working with it's roughly I would say three quarters of an acre um probably just raw space and then with the trees that I planted around there and then the apple trees in the middle and as all those trees are getting bigger and kind of infringing on it you know i probably lost a little bit i'd say you know maybe closer to two-thirds of an acre now is, okay. is what i'm working with there okay and then around the plot did you align it with all those trees that you you bought so is the plot it, like essentially it's kind of 
you know, it's, it's getting to be a little more uniquely shaped as those trees are grown, but it was pretty much a, a rectangle that didn't have one full complete side. Like you took a small square out of one of the corners. So it kind of had a little notch, like a Tetris piece almost in it. And, uh, but putting those apple trees in there, and then putting those uh, spruce trees all around the outside really gives it a little bit of a shape and a little bit of texture to it as well. Um, I also have on the north side of the property where I have the majority of the woods, I have a lot of uh, big overhanging kind of oak branches that I've kind of kept trimmed at proper heights for licking branches. And there's always, you know, half a dozen scrapes along that whole north edge of that plot every single year now. Awesome. So, yeah. That's pretty cool. And so year three, you kill this eight pointer. Was he to your standards at the point at the time? Like how old was he? Well, to my standards, I would say no. I I had previously thought that that deer was a two and a half and he actually was a year and a half, large year and a half. I would say rack, nothing to, uh, you know, brag about, but he probably was a 15 inch inside spread, but shorter times, maybe five, six inches long, but didn't have the mass of a two and a half. And I knew as soon as I walked up on him, body was not a two and a half and you know i i was excited that i was able to do this and put this plan together and i don't consider myself a a big trophy hunter by any means you know i'm i would say in the last few years just really getting into that only shooting that uh mature animal deer status but to me it was a victory and you know it was probably one of the happier moments of my life just accomplishing what i sent out to do you know, my rule at my house, like I said before, two and a half year old, eight point or bigger. So I felt successful in what I did. Um, since that point, you know, I've, I've definitely said, well, I can do this. So, you know, let's, let's, let's not lose sight of the goal and, and, you know, shoot for the moon here for that, uh, that big right. white tail. Yeah. And, you know, I've said it before, it goes in stages, you know, you kill, you kill these deer that, you know, you set your goals every year, or, you know, yeah. and it's, it could be the year and a half, then it jumps at two and a half and then three and a half. And it's, you know, you got to go into stages. You can't, you can't kill a deer you don't have on your farm. So no. And, <laughs> and the funny thing about that was, is I kind of was having some pressure, I think for my wife, because we were going into almost three years where, where I could have been, you know, shooting at least a doe every year. And she looks at my, you know, my credit card bill from the food plots, fertilizer <laughs> and she buy this tractor and implements and stuff. And she's like, you know, eating clean is, is starting to be pretty expensive. <laughs> I said, dang, if I don't shoot a deer this year at the house, I'm really going to catch hell for that. Yep. You got to justify it all too, to the, to the missus. So, yeah, exactly. So that, 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 uh, you know, made peace a little bit easier. And you know, that's, kind of easier in, in Justin as I and I's world because we get we get a lot of this product for you know good deals or yeah. <laughs> so we don't we don't have to deal with well we still do I do anyway like it's like well <laughs> do you really need that well no I really don't but I, I want it I want a new bow you know <laughs> so, right, right. Yeah, do I need it uh, probably not my old bow drives nails but do I want it oh yes exactly sure. And as I get older every year, I'm like, well, I start thinking, you know, my dad was always the guy that's like, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So I'm starting to kind of inherit that a little bit. I can feel myself, but still, man, I like having nice tree stands and nice bows. And (laughs) so it's like, I would say this is, this is the industry where you you do get what you pay for, for the most part. I mean, if you pay for a good quality product, that's going to last you a long period of time. My, I just upgraded bows this past year, not to get off topic, but my previous bow was almost 12 years old. And I mean, that was what I killed 95% of my bow bucks with that I have up until this point in my life. And I mean, it shot just as true as it did with the, 
the last brute that I shot on the state land as it did with the very first deer I killed with it. So that's awesome. Well, cool. So then you went into year four and this last year. Now, how was your success on year four? So year four would be the fall. I would describe year four as the fall after I did the the select cutting. So that kind of took place in the late spring, early summer, a little later than I wanted to, but actually he did me a big favor. He was booked out and actually he just cut my property between jobs. Um, I think they were in and out select cutting my 10 acres in probably two and a half weeks, you know, okay. super, super quick and really efficient, minimal collateral damage. And knowing that I was going to get this property cut, I didn't have very high expectations for, first of all, buck numbers. And then second of all, maturity of bucks. Cause I knew I was going to open up that property quite a bit. And I knew I was going to be spending a lot of time because he cut my property later than what I was ideally hoping for on cleanup. Mm-hmm. Um, but that select cut led me to buy a root grapple for my tractor. Um, I did that and my dad and I welded up a, uh, a quick connect for it. Cause I have a Kubota quick connect. I don't have the quick connect like the skid steers do but I wasn't going to go buy that plate for an extra five, 600 bucks. So got the root grapple all set up and the third function valve on there. And that made cleanup of those tops. And just, I mean, it's amazing how, how much just, uh, you know, another $1,200 worth of implements just saves you on your back and your time. I mean, I was out there with my chainsaw sweating my butt off while I watched my neighbor with his tractor. He came over across the Creek. Luckily he's such a good Samaritan and he had a grapple on his Kubota and, I was like, well, this is dumb. Why don't I have one of these things? So <laughs> yep. I had to, I had to beg the wife for, you know, Hey, you know, I think this is going to make it, you know, the cleanup a little bit quicker and you'll get your woods back to looking a little bit more, you know, ideal. So she got behind that and that's been, that was the big, the biggest purchase and probably the most important purchase out of everything that I've done so far for habitat. It, it really does, does everything. So I uh, busted my butt, I think, every day on the tractor as soon as I would get out of work to get as much of the tops cleaned up as what I thought was appropriate. I still left some in certain kind of strategic locations. And then what I was left with was about instead of one trail that went from east to west from the front of my property to the back, I was actually left with about three, which branched into a fourth from the skitter trails. Um, And then I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I hunted. I saw deer, I had opportunities at those small bucks I had, um, but nothing, nothing shooter wise. I had one shooter on the camera this year. I'm pretty sure he was shot opening day rifle season. Cause he moved through, um, my property at like eight in the morning that day heading towards the state land. So I'm sure he got his ticket punched cause I never saw him after that. Um, but, uh, yeah, but I was expected to, I would think see a, a decline in the deer. Um, just because of the drastic change that I put the property through at that point. Were you, were you correct on that? I mean, did you not see a lot of deer this last fall and you know, yeah, or how, how did it change the movement? The the movement was a lot more nocturnal just because of the, the opening up of the, of the property. And I would right. say I, would, I saw probably, you know, if I'm doing an inventory of how many deer are coming into my destination plot at night by the fall of the third year, I counted my record number of deer in my food plot and that was 19 in that, um, in that small, you know, two thirds acre. I think last year, the most I counted was about 12 or 13. So still not terrible, but not nearly the numbers that I was seeing before I got the property cut. And I had a lot more daytime sightings in year three than I did four. 
But in my mind, this was all for the bigger picture. I get those poplars cut. I get those pines cut. I get a lot more sunlight to the soil. Those popples are going to shoot up, you know, all kinds of popple shoots. And then um, that brings me kind of into uh, this year's springtime situation. I'm going to bring in about another 50 to 100 conifers to kind of plant sporadically throughout the property in between those skitter trails. I plan on leaving those skitter trails as kind of bare dirt cleaned out um, and uh, roughly till those in and plant those with just some kind of, uh, you know, either a cereal grain or, you know, try and work some clover in or some chicory, depending on how my soil does or how long it's going to take to to get it right as, a, as basically grazing corridors for those deer to just constantly feel like they can move. And then to, you know, both sides of those trails provide that cover with those, with those new saplings and that new growth to regenerate as well as um, those conifers. And uh, I kind of came to that conclusion that I had uh, Nick Percy come out and do a, a little mini property consult on his way up north to do another one. And um, I talked to him about hinge cutting and, you know, now that I got my property select cut, that was another reason why I didn't hinge cut a ton earlier is I knew there was going to be a lot of collateral damage from that, from that select cut. And I didn't want to ruin a bunch of trees that I just hinge cut and, uh, you know, basically make them turn them into firewood. Right. So that was, that was a big reason why I waited. So I kind of talked to him, you know, where should I hinge cut? What should I hinge cut? And he said, you really only want to hinge cut the trees that are only hinge cuttable. If that, you know, I don't know if that's technically a word or not. He showed me a lot of the trees that, you know, smaller diameter trees, he talked about getting paracord. And what he does on a lot of his properties is he'll tie up those trees off with paracord and anchor them to other bigger trees or drive, you know, big stakes in the ground. And you really actually turn those trees into, you know, maybe a seven to 10 year survival rate with a hinge cut, maybe more if you're, you know, pretty good at the saw, but, you know, basically keeping them alive forever. And eventually they kind of develop that, that memory of that growth pattern and you can kind of unhinge or untie those things and they'll continue to grow in that semi-horizontal or horizontal fashion. Yeah. And that's something I did on my farm this last year. So coming into this last fall, um, well, basically last winter. So what I did is a lot of those smaller trees, I was experimenting with the paracord and I bent a lot of trees over and, and, and paracorded them to like other trees or like you said put a stake in the ground and did that and I actually had bucks bedding in and around them because uh-huh. I just made little pockets for them but I did find that in a lot of the hinge cut that I did you know I always you know read and saw people say that you need to put like a barrier over like the deer want to feel secure underneath things well that is so far from the truth on my farm I, mm-hmm. I built two big um, hinge cut uh, areas where they actually had like basically canopies over them and they did not want to go in there at all. They actually bedded in the middle of all my hinge cut with hinge cut around them, (laughs) but nothing over them. And all the bucks, I mean, I had a variety of ages, anywhere from three to four years old, two year old bucks. They'd all bed in the middle, like in the wide open, but with hinge cut all around them. So it wasn't like tight on them, but they still felt like they could get out of there if they needed to. They can't see around. They only can see probably 20 or 30 feet, but they can smell from every direction. So, yep. and I've, I've made trails going every which way for them to be able to exit. So that's one tip that I, I definitely have for, for people wanting to hinge cut is, is don't think that you need to put a barrier around the whole deer and think they're going to get into this little hole and just kind of tuck themselves in. In my yep. opinion, 
that does not work and it has not happened very well for me anyway. No. And I would, I would agree a hundred percent, not from the aspect that, you know, I don't have the experience with the hinge cutting as much as you do, but I would say the barrier aspect, I really shot myself in the foot when I was clearing a lot of those tops from those big pines, you know, I was just going for as quick as I could get the desired, you know, woods to the way I wanted it to be. So I would move a lot of that stuff and almost create like a soft fence on my one Northern border of my property. And I had a couple openings in there, but you know, after, after, uh, doing some thinking about it, you know, those deer, they don't want to get in like they're herded into a cattle fence and think like, Ooh, I only can run east to west. I can't really do too right. much north to south running. So as soon as I get a little more snow melt, my, my big spring project here before, uh, I start to get some um, perennial growth back into my plots is going to be to take that grapple on my chainsaw and actually probably take out a section that's, you know, three, four foot wide in that brush and in that brush pile barrier fence, probably every 10 or 15 feet. So it gives them those options. So they still get some cover. They still get some security, but they have options going every which way. So that's, that's going to be on my immediate project. I'll probably tackle a little bit of that this weekend if, if the weather cooperates. Yeah. Well, cool. That that's sweet. I mean, that's really cool to see what you're doing on 10 acres. I mean, that's, you've done a lot of work and surprised you're still married to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and the thing that, that I forgot to mention earlier too, year, year three before, before I got a select cut and this was kind of the final, the straw that broke the camel's back. I had my second biggest, um, scorable buck on camera. Um, and he came in with actually three or four others in the same weekend. And I don't know what it was. It was that first full weekend in November. And sadly I wasn't home. We have a bow camp weekend up in Alpena that I was at. And I came home to check my cameras and it was just sick to my stomach that I was gone. I had a, uh, two different nine pointers and eight pointer come on and then a drop tine 10 pointer with about a six inch drop coming off his main beam coming growing straight out like an eye guard and oh, just, wow. just a gorgeous looking buck. Um, saw, had him a couple times on camera, similar to that other big one I talked about earlier. And the, the most ironic situation ever, you're never going to guess who killed that buck on the second day of rifle season. The same guy who killed that 146. Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> the rich get it, richer, man. So it's it was the most ridiculous thing because I didn't show hardly anybody a picture of that buck, just because I mean it's a drop time buck. What the heck, you know? Right. And uh, all of a sudden, my buddy texted me when I was up north for rifle season, and he says, "Dude, look at this buck my dad just shot." And he shows me a picture of it. And at first, I just looked at it and I was like, "Dude, that's a nice buck." Then I saw it had that because it was facing me, and I saw it had that eye guard, and I was like, "You have got to be shitting me." <laughs> like this is unreal so then i showed him the trail cam picture and he's like no way you had that buck on camera and i was like yeah multiple times man so, but i've actually got to i mean with him being a buddy i've actually got to go to his dad's house and put my hands on those two those two frames both the the nine pointer and then that drop time 10 then um yeah it's it's good to know that at least somebody i would say not necessarily deserving of it because i mean everybody's deserving if you harvest the deer but somebody that i know harvested those deer so i still get to at least you know see what they look like in real life you know yeah exactly so transitioning let's transition a little bit here going from your 10 acres now you do have a lease as well in michigan and i th i found this pretty interesting because you know growing up in michigan and everything you don't hear of a lot of guys going out and looking for leases in michigan now i think it's one of those new things that people are doing and i mean i'd like to find a lease in michigan actually if, if it was the right you know right piece and it sounds like you found the right piece can you kind of paint the picture for that lease and and 
you know, where it is and well, yeah, I guess you don't have to say really where it is, but, uh, (laughs) you know, what it is basically and, and how you came to acquire it. So yeah, the lease is, is I actually lucked out. Um, I'll start by just, you know, kind of getting into the lease and then I'll talk about kind of logistics of where it's at. I, um, I, I hunt with, uh, a good buddy, his name's Craig Watson and we do, you know, we fish, we hunt, we hunt turkey, deer, duck, goose, you know, whatever. And, um, we always were saying, you know, we really, he has a similar situation, you know, small acreage at his house, you know, wants that opportunity to shoot those big mature bucks. And we figured the best way to be able to do that on a consistent basis is going to be if we picked up a good lease, but we just, you know, we didn't know what was available or, you know, how hard it was to look at leases in Michigan. And, you know, you, you run into some that are crazy priced and they only want you to set foot on the property between October one and, you know, January one, and then you're just rolling your, rolling your dice and, you know, hoping for the best. And I got a call from him out of the blue one day and says, you know, you're welcome. And I was like, well, what is that supposed to mean? And he told me, I just got us into a great lease. And I'm like, first I was like, well, you know, are we already in? Cause I don't even know what the heck it is. And, uh, he started telling me about it and, you know, it was almost instantaneous. I could just hear him saying, I just walked the property and it is some of the best whitetail ground that I've walked in Michigan or out of Michigan. And I'm like, no kidding, really. And, uh, it ends up being, luckily it's only about 30 minute drive from my house due North. It's in Oceana County, um, surrounded by a lot of big private parcels. One of the guys about a quarter mile away, um, he bought 240 acres, pretty close to the 120 that we have. And, um, he's a big QDM guy. He's had it for a couple of years, sat a couple nice bucks off it back to back years. I think his were both above the 140 class. So, um, good deer for that area, good deer for Michigan. And, and, you know, in my opinion, anywhere they're, you know, big mature bodies and stuff you want to see. Um, that lease is, is kind of the best of all habitats from what the best way I can describe it. There's a, there's a Southern square 40, that used to be the, I would say, homestead back in the late 1800s, which has since kind of fallen down and collapsed. That's kind of where we uh, will park if we're going to hunt that South 40. And uh, there's, it's basically an overgrown apple orchard. The uh, the guy that started that lease, he he uh, kind of explained and gave me a little history when I came on board. And um, it he showed me the aerial and you can see the amount of growth that aerial photo is probably from 10 years ago. And the amount of growth and thickness that has come up in all the surrounding structures is, is amazing how much more cover there is now than what there was before. And I mean, it was good before and it's, it's only getting better as kind of we push on. Um, as I was saying, my buddy and I are on the lease and there's actually two other guys on that lease um, currently right now, which, you know, some of you may think, and Oh, four guys on 120, that's kind of tight quarters, but there's rarely a time when there's two people hunting on it. It's usually one person goes up at a time, not because that's our rule, but just because everybody's got different times off. I mean, you may all want to hunt the same time, but everybody's got work, jobs, families. I actually am fortunate enough that I live the closest and have the most flexibility most of the other guys are driving almost an hour, hour and a half to get up there. So it's not as easy for them to just pop up real quick and go, you know. Right. And so, you know, getting into the lease, mm-hmm. are you kind of skeptical about, you know, it's Michigan kind of thing. <laughs> and you're just like, well, I guess I'm going to try it for the first year. Like, how was your thought process going into it? I was super skeptical. And, and you hit it right on the right on the head there. Um, 
we get we got you know offered this lease really late into the season. I want to say it was almost the middle of August, maybe maybe a touch later. And I was just my own, my mind is already made up. I had my state land spot scouted. I got my house going. You know, I'm just like, oh, this is a whole new monkey wrench. And I was like, I don't have a bunch of stands I can offer up and hang up. And and luckily the guy that's had the lease the longest, he has on that on that lease probably about 20 stands that have been hung and set all ready to go that anybody can use. And it's like, huh, well, that's kind of a cool situation. And then changes the ball game a little, it changes the ball game. Yeah. And then I start to ask, well, you know, what are the, what are the rules? What's the do's? What's the don'ts? What do you got? You know, how serious are you guys about cover sense and, or, you know, you know, no scent and no scent showers and all that hoopla that's, you know, out there today. And he says, well, eight pointer rules are eight pointer or bigger is basically our, our biggest rule um mature deer so mature deer for us this year we we all kind of came collectively together and had a little vote we decided that this year we wanted to have it two and a half years old or older if you felt like you wanted to harvest a two and a half you could they see i mean and they showed trail cam photos from the past you know three four years they have age structures all the way up to what i would say is a five and a half potentially a six and a half deer that they nickname um baby d and just a huge buck you know, buck of a lifetime, seen them mm-hmm. on the hoof a couple times when they've been in the stand. So I knew the potential was there. Um, after walking the property, even just a little bit that I did prior to season, I decided it was worth the money and worth the investment to at least give it a trial year. And that's basically what my buddy and I decided to do when we agreed with those other two guys that we were going to sign with them and we were going to pay the price for this year. Now I will say the advantage that we have with this lease, unlike most of your hunting leases is this is a 12 year lease for us. So we can go up there 12 months out of the year. I could turkey hunt at the spring if I wanted to. The south branch of the Pentwater River is on there. I could go up there and fish some trout, um, mushroom hunt, any of that kind of stuff I want to do. And obviously the advantages for a 12-month lease for developing habitat, putting in food plots is, you know, you can't you can't even, you know, weigh that out. Right. So that's huge because you're not only paying it for, for like a September to January, you're paying for it for the whole year. So you and your family can all enjoy it the whole year. Like you said. Mm -hmm. Yep. And the lease dictates it's, it's you, your spouse and, or any of your kids are allowed to use that property to hunt that property, you know, for what it has and what it offers. So, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, this is a guaranteed way. I just I had a son about 14 months ago now, and I'm like, you know what? As as hard as it is to get kids into hunting nowadays, and you know, you want that success, and that's the whole purpose behind developing my house. But man, if I got a lease like this, I guarantee he's going to see deer every sit, and he's going to see multiple oh, yeah. deer. And what more For way sure. to get a kid jacked up about deer and deer hunting than if he's seeing you know deer? And just yeah, educating a lot them of on that and, you know, educating them on, oh, they're moving like this. So they're, you know, we got to be quiet because, you know, just educational opportunities and, and getting those kids excited about it is, is endless in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you really hit the nail on the head there. You know, get, and the thing is, as kids, they just, they just don't seem like they're interested anymore. Like we were as kids, you know, mm-hmm. I, like every one of my friends when we were little, was interested in hunting and was brought up in hunting. You know what I mean? And it's, you, you see all these kids now and it's, I don't know what it is, you know, I don't know if it's the social media or if it's the, the video games or what it is, but they just don't feel like they even want to be outside doing anything. So it's, it's, it's nice to see that you're, you're able to, 
to work that property into your everyday life with your family. So that's, that's really cool too. Yeah. We actually just went up, my wife and I, we put our, our uh, son in a little backpack hiking carrier and we went up for about a hour and a half shed hunt up there this past weekend. And he was just loving it. Every time he'd stop, he'd, he'd start <laughs> kicking you in the back and kind of yelling and screaming at you like, Oh, keep going, keep going. And, you know, <laughs> unsuccessful cool. on finding sheds, but it was, it was a good time up there for sure. Yeah. And just to get outside right now, you know, after being the long winter that we've had and mm-hmm. just, it's nice, but going forward now. So is that basically the extent of all your rules or did you guys have more rules within there about is, you know, anything like checking trail cams on a certain day or, you know, anything like that. So I th- for, it was kind of a, a rule decided that, you know, for the most part, we wouldn't check a trail camera unless we were passing that trail camera on our way to go hunt. And, you know, you pull a card out, put a card back in, and then you're not making any extra trips. You're only leaving a minimal amount of scent. Um, the, the one other big rule is, you know, when you have 20 stands up there and you have four guys, you know, everybody's probably wondering, well, how do you decide who hunts where? And, you know, the, the nice thing about it was when I said that that guy put up those 20 stands as community stands, you know, for the vast majority of them, I would say 90% of them, they were. A couple of them he did reserve for him and his kid. But you know what? I wasn't going to be picky about it in that first year. I'm like, we can always talk about that stuff later on. And so the unwritten rule was we all had a group text and, you know, there wouldn't probably be two or three days that would go by if that where we would be texting who's on this weekend, who's on tonight cold front coming through yada 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 and it was it was understood that it was first come first serve if you said i'm hunting this weekend and i'm i'm hunting the apache stand well then since you said it you get the apache stand or i'm hunting the point tonight then you get the point so even though two of those guys had a lot more seniority than my buddy and i they kind of you know it's fair game and that's you know and that's the way it should be in a lease is Everybody's paying equal amounts financially. Everybody's bringing the same thing to the table, you know. Yeah, and it's good to have some bylaws or rules as well. I mean, just so everybody's on the same page and there's, you know, at the end of the day, there's no lost friendships or no bad blood because it could get – I mean, the thing is with deer hunting is there's a lot of people out there that everybody owns the deer. You know what I mean? That's my deer. Like that's my stand, you know what I mean? And it, and there's a lot of people that lose friendships and everything over deer hunting. And it's like, man, like, come on, like, let's just all have fun here, you know? And it's, it it really, it makes me sick sometimes to think about it. And I see it firsthand with some people that I know very close to me and it just bothers me so much. It it, it really does. And and you, you hit it exactly right. Like everybody thinks they own the deer. I mean, I had two of the, the nicest bucks I've ever had on trail camera shot. And just because I had them on camera, they're not my deer. If those deer roam, I'd realistically understand I only had 10 acres. The likelihood that that deer was going to live on 10 acres with the way I had it set up at that time, non-existent for a chance. But would he pass yeah. through maybe chasing a doe? There's always that chance. But there's always that right. chance he's going to run a mile away and get shot too. So, you know, that's that's why it's hunting. And, you know, you don't got them tied down and waiting for you. Exactly. And I think Justin can attest to this. He's been hunting public land and you kind of have to have an open mind when you go into public land. I mean, he can, he can vouch a little more on it, but, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, nobody owns the deer out there really. No, it's, it's, it's like you guys are with the orange army up there during, during gun season. It's, it's how it is here in bow season. <laughs> and, and yeah. that, that's exactly, that's exactly right. I mean, up until this, this lease and even when I had my property, just my house, I mean, 
I was primarily, I would say, a public land hunter. I hunted public land on our deer camp in Alpena, and I hunted public land most of my life in, in both season. The, the two, actually, the three mounter bucks that I have shoulder mounts on my wall, two three and a halfs and one four and a half, all public land eight pointers. And it's just you just gotta you gotta get a whole new mindset when you when you take off into that public land set and you you gotta almost kind of wear your emotions on your sleeve and just brush them off and somebody comes storming in you know and, and messes up your set it's like okay well on to the next one gotta go <laughs> gotta go a little deeper in or you know yep you know and how many years have you been hunting this lease then now that was last year was the very first year of the lease so we literally just hunted it last year i probably i mean i saw more deer probably last fall than i've seen maybe in three four seasons combined like just an astronomical amount of deer. Um, we had a lot of intentions to shoot. Uh, the other rule I would say too, it brings me back to when, when we're talking about shooting deer, um, for every one buck you shoot, they like to ideally shoot two does. That's kind of where they figure their ratio is at as of right now. And as we hunted there and more eyes in the stands and looking around and kind of taking inventory, I think they have a little bit more than that kind of two to one ratio right now. And last year, there, we only took two does off the entire property and then there was only two bucks shot off the property. So, um, not a significantly huge harvest. One of the guys hardly hunted last year. Um, so, you know, it, it is what it is and how many deer we took. We had a, a great number of deer on camera, some big ones, um, quite a few shooters, saw a few shooters besides the one that, um, I ended up taking on that lease. But I think we'll, We'll definitely be a little bit more aggressive on the doe harvest going into this year, moving forward. There was a, a day my buddy was sitting up there and he said he saw 40 deer one night and um, a couple of them are the same does, but he says most of them were all coming from different spots, so they had to be different deer. And uh, I think he said of those 40 deer that he saw, 30, 33 of them were, were does, seven of them oh, were wow. Small were bucks and one was one was a possible shooter couldn't get a real good id on it but so the ratio is i think a little bit further you know tweaked in favor of the does and i think what everybody had previously guessed so that's going to be a big target for this fall is going to be doe harvest for us yeah i could definitely attest to that as well on my family farm it's the same way i mean you'll go out to our our ag field on, on the front of the property and you'll see 80 90 deer a night in that field and you know eight to ten of them will be bucks and the rest of them are fawns or not fawns but i'm sorry does Mm -hmm. and it's just the doe numbers are just or the deer numbers in general but the the ratio is just so out of whack so we try to take a few does every year and you know it's helping a little bit but we i know we could be doing more to to fix it but it's Mm -hmm. it's just one of those things man it's it's a lot easier said than done so (laughs) It is. The the funny thing is, is you have a mindset, I'm going to go out and shoot a doe today and, you know, something comes up. Like I had two opportunities this year where, I mean, I had more than two opportunities to shoot does, but I had two times where I was like, I'm going to go out and kill a doe. And I saw two shooters that day. One of them, I, you know, <laughs> I thought it was a, a different deer and I waited too long to draw. And then when he turned broadside and then turned his head away and I saw his spread, I was like, oh crap. And it was too late and you know i watched him walk away and i was like well that's gonna come back to get me and same thing happened in muzzleloader i went out to shoot a doe and i still could have but i watched one of the biggest deer i've ever seen on the hoof get up right behind i stand when my muzzleloader was tied to my 
uh, pull string <laughs> at the base of my tree and he <laughs> wandered off about 40 yards and bedded down in the cats and stayed there the entire night. I mean, I was covered up with those could have shot, you know, a few of them, but obviously you're not going to pull the trigger when you got a potential 150 that's bedded about 70 yards away until you, right. can't, see, until you can't see anything, you know? Yep. Especially with a muzzleloader, because you can't really shoot one of those those does and wait for him to get up, or maybe you know, and try to reload. <laughs> if I would if I would have had my three hundred eight, I might have thought about cranking one of those does and then just quick and doing a re rack and, and seeing if he was going to budge. But yeah, the muzzleloader, you know, I don't I don't practice my reloading for speed. So <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, cool, man. I want to you know th- tell you thank you for coming on and doing this. You know, we're coming up on an hour here. Yeah. Um, I definitely like to get you back on again and, and maybe jump into some public land stuff because to this year is going to be my first excursion on public land ever. So oh, man. pick everybody's <laughs> brain about it. And as much yeah. as, especially guys from Michigan. So, but uh, Justin, do you have any lasting uh, questions or thoughts for, for Matt? Uh, no questions really. I mean, it's just, I didn't say anything, but yeah, and cool and laugh a couple of times. I don't think in, in the whole hour, <laughs> but uh, it was, I was just taking it in because it's like, it's so impressive to me how you guys, you know, in the position you are like in Michigan with, with the resources you have and the the sizes of the property you have to work with, like what you guys are doing on these small, these small parcels, like you, Aaron, with, with your one acre. And it's just like, you guys get so resourceful. I mean, 10 acres is not a lot, but I mean, like you said, it's, it can be done. I mean, and Aaron, I I bet you wish you had 10 acres, you know, and it's just one of those things where... (laughs) I'm just listening to you guys talk about, about what you're doing. And it's like, I hope people that hear this podcast just realize that you don't need 200 acres in Illinois or Iowa or Kansas or Missouri to do this kind of stuff. And it's, you know, you, you create edge habitat, you put food in, you make sure they have everything they need to, to want to be on your property. And I mean, they will be there just a matter of whether you're out there when they come through. Yeah, yeah. I, would, I would say you, you're exactly right about that. Um, you know, like I said, I hit on that point earlier. I've heard that quote more times and, you know, I can count, you know, the quality, the quality of the property outweighs the quantity of the property when it's in you know yeah. the right area. You don't have to have a hundred acres or anything like that to be, to be successful. You just got to have the right piece in the right place. Right. And it's, I had somebody at the Iowa deer classic and Aaron and I kind of went down this, this path about a week ago. Um, I'll keep it short, but somebody had come up and asked me about doe management and like what's what's the right number of does to shoot if I want to if I want to kill does to help manage my herd and that's kind of a loaded question without knowing the size of your property, you know the the overall number of deer that inhabit that piece of property you know year round versus the number that are just coming through during the rut. But you know I I kind of broke it down and equated it to that guy to say. You know, is, is your is your property primarily bedding? Is your property primarily a food source? Or are you housing deer that live there year-round? And if so, how many – have you done a census? Have you done a survey? Like, what, do you, what are you starting with? Like, you can't – I can't give you a, an honest answer without, without more information. And I think to your point, it's like whether you've got one acre, 10 acres, or 50 acres, you know, that – your 10 acres might just be – you know, all, all standing timber, like you might have hard mass for food, but otherwise, you know, you're, you're looking for cruisers, you know, you're not housing deer, you know, so you just figure out how to, how to use what you have. Like once you can identify 
why are they here in the first place? You know, and, and then figure out how to use that to your advantage. Yeah, yeah that, that's that's exactly right. Um, you know, and 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 not to, I know we're we're running short on time here. Um, hitting on another another thing about that lease is it's a it's a a nerve wracking feeling when you enter into a lease that's not just your own. Um, when I when I pulled that release trigger and I let that arrow fly on the buck I shot this year off that lease. I was the first person to shoot a buck off that lease this year. And, you know, everybody said, well, okay, you know, everybody knows how to age deer, you know, but when you're doing that and you're in fearful of like, oh man, did I shoot the right deer? And then you're second guessing, you're like, oh no, I know that was a big, oh, that was a big, I know that was, but, you know, the emotions that go through, not just from, you know, your heart and adrenaline, all that stuff, holy crap, there's a, there's a shooter buck in front of me, but then you're like, man, did I make the right move? are these guys going to be mad at me that I just screw myself up for, you know, potentially being on this lease for next year or years to come. So, you know, that's a, that's a whole nother stigma for, you know, trying to get into a lease. And that was nothing I had experience with before. So those thoughts raced through my mind about a hundred times before I walked up and, you know, held those horns in my hand for the first time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I mean, you can't really go into it thinking about yourself. You got other people to think about as well. I mean, that's a good point. And, you know, my lasting kind of thought, you know, what I'm going to say is, and the small property thing, and and you both kind of touched on on it, is, you know, use your resources as well as you can. And with what you have, like I said, I have a, you know, uh, 120 acres, but, you know, there's only four acres of timber and one acre of timber by itself. And that's what I've been really using. Well, the biggest take from a small acre, in my opinion, is hunt it on the right times. Don't overhunt it. If it's your only piece of ground, you know, you can't go out there and hunt it every day. You got to really hunt it on the right times and, and, and keep your pressure minimal. And that's that's how I found success this year. I, I didn't hunt it very much, and I was able to see, you know, three bucks that were three and a half years old and, and, and one that was four and a half years old. So I would say that'd be my bag, my biggest lasting thought on all that. So. And yeah, I would just echo that, especially for the, you know, the small property. I think I hunted in the last two seasons at my house. I don't think I've sat in my tree stands at my house more than six sits, maybe eight, just because conditions went right or I didn't have the deer on the camera that I was hoping for a time of year, whatever else. But I mean, I think that echoes not just for private small parcel pieces, but, you know, state land too. Um, the, The best success that I've had on the state land have come from either the first or second sits into the areas where I know holds a good deer and, and, you know, less pressure, less scent, you know, they don't got people walking through there 12 months out of the year. And all of a sudden you start laying scent down, you know, they're going to catch on those big ones are going to move out. They're going to get wise to it. So pick and choose your sits. You know, you don't have to be that guy that hunts 50 or 60 days out of a three month period. You just have to be that guy that hunts two days out of the entire season. But if you choose the right two days, yeah, you got it made. For sure, man. Well, cool. Again, I want to thank you for coming on and appreciate you for doing for doing this. And you know, I really want to do it again because I want to talk about your public land excursions. And and we'll for sure have you on here soon again. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. It was it was a lot of fun. And anytime you can get on and, and talk with other guys that are you know passionate about deer hunting and habitat, always trying to improve themselves as a, as a sportsman and improve the quality of the deer of the areas that they're hunting in is it's always good to bounce ideas back and forth off of those people so i appreciate it yeah no problem man and uh, i want to thank you again and we're gonna 
we're going to cut this loose here. So thank you, Matt. Sounds good. Thanks again, guys.